on the tail end of a series that's seven weeks long that we have been looking at where we're calling God's vision. So we're calling it God's vision because it's basically what does God want for his people? What does God want for his church? And the idea behind the series is let's look at all of the commands of the New Testament. Look at all the commands that God said, do this, don't do this. There's over 400 direct commands. And let's try to find out what is mentioned most frequently, what is mentioned most emphatically. So there are basically what I've called seven core commands that are mentioned over and over and over again. If you took the 400 plus commands, more than 90% of them actually fit under seven umbrellas and are really just seven things mentioned time and time and time and time again. I'm not going to take the time to, to rehash through, you know, being a witness and worshiping God and all these commands. I'm just going to go straight to what we have for us this morning, which is core command number six. And this command is that God wants his people to be generous do-gooders. Now, it's going to take me some time to explain what I mean by that, but here is the basic premise of today's sermon, that one of the marks of God's people one of the marks of God's church is supposed to be deeds of service towards those that have physical and material needs. And we're going to take kind of a brief uh, overview of the scriptures this morning. I will apologize in advance that I'm going to back up the scripture dump truck and just kind of unload it on you a little bit this morning, which I normally don't do. But you could really, if you can think of these four headings, you'll get the sermon, okay? The, the four headings are the gravity of good works, the definition of good works, the objections to good works, and then the catalyst for good works. So if you're a note taker, those are your, your four headings, the gravity of, the definition of, the objections to, and the catalyst for. So let's take them in turn and work through this and just kind of get to work this morning. Let's start with the gravity of good works. I am using the phrase good works because when you look at the scriptures, when it gives us the command to do good or to be a do-gooder, as I would call it, you would find the terminology that's used in scripture is in fact the phrase good works. Now, time will not permit me to do an in-depth survey of every time you see this phrase mentioned in the Bible. Although I'd recommend to you, if you have Bible software or something like that, plug in that phrase and see when it, when it comes up. But the, the short version that you would find of what good works are and what they're meant for and what they mean is this. Good works, first of all, are God's goal for every converted heart. You would find in Ephesians 2, for example, that Christians are not saved, are not brought into the family of God or have right standing with God by good works. You're not saved by that. It's very, very, very clear. But we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we, the Christians, should walk in them. So what you find is you're not saved by good works, but it's God's intention for every converted heart that you would actually walk in good works, that you're created in Jesus for this purpose, and he ordained it for you. Titus chapter number two says something very similar. It says that Jesus gave himself for us, speaking of his death on the cross, to redeem us from iniquity and purify a peculiar people zealous of good works. So what, what Paul says to Titus, his protege, is, Titus, I want to remind you, here's why Jesus died. Okay, now that seems important. Here's why Jesus died. Number one, to redeem you from iniquity. Okay, he wants the absence of the neg negative. He wants to take away the iniquity. He wants to take away the sin. He wants to redeem you. We should celebrate and love that. But also, 
that he would actually purify a peculiar people, people that kind of look weird to the world around them because they are zealous or passionate of good works. He redeemed you to take away your sin. He also died for you so that he would make you a, a, a person, a, a people, a church that are passionate for good works. You also find biblically that good works actually provide true evidence of faith and of conversion. That, it, that it's an indicator, it's a fruit of sorts, that if you really know Jesus, this will come out of your life. If you remember James chapter number two, James talks at length about this, and he says, faith without works is dead. And if you want to show me your faith without your works, go ahead, give it a try. I'll show you my faith by my works. And what James is saying is the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter number 25, that it's actually an evidence that I have really experienced Jesus, that I am a Christian, that I know God, is this idea that I have good works. You find in Hebrews chapter number 13 that good works are quote-unquote well-pleasing to God. That they are things that God enjoys that are pleasing to him and not just pleasing to him, but it is well-pleasing to him. He delights in his people doing good works. Hebrews 10 tells us that we as Christians should provoke each other to good works. That we actually should consider one another and we should provoke each other. We should spur each other on to love and to good works. We should try to bring it out of each other. We should want this for each other. You find in 2 Timothy 3, this one was very interesting to me as I studied it. It never really registered with me this way. But 2 Timothy 3, we talked about this two weeks ago, this passage of Scripture. It talks about the Scriptures themselves and that the Bible itself is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for us to actually read it and know it and digest it. And it's profitable so that we can know what's right, so that we can get right, so that we can stay right. And, and Paul goes on to tell Timothy, his protege, that you want to study these for these purposes so that we may be mature and so that we can be equipped for every good work. He puts it as that we would be throughly furnished unto all good works. What he's saying is that the Bible properly understood, when you study it and you read it and you learn it, it will do something in you and to you. It will mature you as a Christian and it actually will equip you to be able to do good works. You find that good works cause other people to glorify God. Jesus said this very famously in his Sermon on the Mount, that we should let our light so shine before men so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. You also find that this silence is a hostile and unbelieving world. Peter said that good works were such a powerful testimony to those who not only did not believe in Jesus, but they, they were those that were hostile towards Jesus, that at times, on occasion, it would cause them to stop and just be befuddled. And say, you know what, I really don't like you, and I really don't like what you stand for, and I really don't agree with your doctrine and all that Bible stuff, but I can't help but argue what you're doing here is awesome, and I really appreciate what you're doing in your good works. So the point of this, and that's a, I uh, know that's a crash course, okay, those are the footnotes on what good works are biblically. The point is that they seem to be really important. If you look at the Bible and you just, you know, read through it and try to understand this, you would find that this seems to be wildly important to God. Like as such that he would say, I want every believer to have these. I want it to be evidence of salvation. I want it to speak volumes to a world around that's witnessing. It'll be, bring glory to me and it will even silence hostile unbelievers. This is something that you should encourage out of each other. This is something that the Bible is intended to bring out of you. This is wildly important. It has tremendous emphasis. I would put it this way. There is tremendous gravity to the idea, biblically, that Christians should be people of good works. Now, the million-dollar question is this. What are good works? 
The million dollar question is that if this is so important and it comes up over and over and over and over again, what is this good work stuff? Is, is, is this, you know, lending to the poor? Is this helping the lady across the street? Is this being a moral person, just living an honest life? Can I say, hey, I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife. God wants that. I'm faithful to my wife. I don't cheat on her. Check, good works. That was a good work. You know, I, I, I've done my job. What does good works mean? Is it D, all of the above? How do, how do we define this? And that really is the task, and where I think the rubber starts to meet the road, is the definition of good works. I could take you to several other passages, and if you want to stop me in the hallway and ask me for more, I'll give you more. But for sake of time this morning, I'll take you to the one that I think is the, is the most applicable to trying to define good works. And that is actually at the end of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 6, Paul gives special instruction to Timothy so that Timothy will give special instruction to rich people, actually. And here's what he says in 1 Timothy 6. I want you to pay attention to this language. He says... Charge them or challenge them that are rich in this world. So Timothy, I specifically want you to give this instruction to people that have more means, people that have more money. Now, pause for a minute. I've preached on this verse before, but I'll remind you. At this point, everyone says like, oh, okay, that's those people, not me, okay? No one feels rich. Everyone thinks rich is the other guy. But the reality, just plain hard cold fact, is that if your family, like your household income, is more than $43,000 a year, you are right now today in the top 1% of the world. We like to talk about the 1% in our country, but the reality is if you have $43,000 of combined household income, you are in the 1% of the world. So most of you, under the sound of my voice, statistically speaking, are the rich people, okay? I want to remind you that. I know you don't feel it, but the reality is you're the rich people. And he says this is the instruction. First, that they be not high-minded. Tell them not to be haughty. Tell them not to be arrogant. Ever met a rich, arrogant person? That's no fun, okay? Don't, tell them not to be arrogant. Also tell them that they do not trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us, giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So, Tell them don't be arrogant. Tell them don't migrate their hope from, their money to God, from God to their money. Tell them to keep their hope with God. God's the one that blesses. God's the one that gives. Don't put your hope in money. Tell them to do that. But then tell them this, that they do good. Watch this. That they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, or willing to share. What he says is tell the rich people that they have a special obligation, that they should actually do more good works than their poor counterparts, that they should share and open their hand and they should actually give more dollars away. Now, what he is implying is that good works can and should be attached to your means, attached to your finances, even attached to your, to your bank account or what you have at your disposal. Now, that moves good works outside of the realm of pure morality to something far more targeted and far more specific. Let me put it to you this way. Should a rich Christian be more honest than a poor Christian? Not a, not a trick question. The answer is no. They should both be radically honest, okay? Should a rich Christian be more faithful to his wife than a poor Christian? No. Should a rich Christian pray more than a poor Christian? No. Should a rich Christian potentially give more dollars away than a poor Christian? Yes. 
That would make sense. They have more, when they open their hand, there's more in their hand, there's more to go away. Should I, here's a million dollar question. Should a rich person have more good works, a rich Christian, than a poor Christian? Hmm, tough one. I think Paul says yes. He says, tell the rich people that they should do good works, and, but tell them this, tell them that they be rich in good works. Tell them they do more. Now, how could that be? If you're defining good works in a, in a moral framework as be honest, um, you know, don't cheat on your wife, worship, prayer, then, then it doesn't make any sense at all. But if you're defining good works as something far more specific, like giving clothes to homeless people, or providing medical assistance, or caring for the poor, then it would make complete sense that a rich Christian would be able to do more things for those people that are in need than a poor Christian would be able to do. Now, I could show you the same thing in Hebrews chapter number 13, where it delineates our praise and our good works. I could take you to several places in Scripture, but, but the point is this. The point is that good works is targeted, and when you read good works in Scripture, it doesn't just mean a blanket, just do good stuff that you think is good. Just be a good parent. Just be a good wife. It, that's not what it means. It is specifically aimed at actually distributing and opening your hand to those that have less than you. James 2, I think, is a very famous passage on this. James goes to great lengths. He spends 13 verses talking about works being accompanied uh, with salvation, that good works don't accomplish our salvation, but they accompany it. And he, he goes to great lengths to explain it biblically and look at Abraham and look at Rahab, and this would make sense, that good works are evidence of salvation, but he only gives one practical outworking. If you look at James chapter number two, one practical outworking of what those good works may be. And he says in verses 15 and verses 16, if a brother or sister be naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? You know how James describes the good works that he's talking about? Someone who has, who has a need of food, someone who has a need of clothing, and a Christian says, well, you know, I'll pray for you, brother. Uh, I'm praying that God will provide for you. God bless you. See you later. He says, what good did you do them? Don't, don't just pray for them. Give them the clothes. Give them the food. That's the good works. Let's go to Luke chapter number 10. Let me try to help you understand this. As you turn there, I want to give you what I believe is a biblical working definition of good works. Biblical good works is this. It is love expressing itself in deeds of service towards those who have physical and material needs. Now, this is going to be off-putting to some of you, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. Simply put, good works is properly motivated social concern. Now, we'll work through that in a minute, but that, that's the biblical definition, best I can tell of what it is. It is love that expresses itself in deeds of service to those who have a physical and material need. It is properly motivated social concern. Luke 10 is where we're at. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, and we'll read it in a minute, is prefaced by a lawyer coming to Jesus trying to trick Jesus. And the lawyer thinks that Jesus is going to minimize the law. That he's going to minimize, you know, what, what Moses said and what the law required of people, the Torah. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to get eternal life, okay? What do I have to do to be saved, basically? Thinking perhaps that Jesus is going to say, well, just believe on me. So Jesus turns the question back to him and he says, well, what does the law say you should do? So the lawyer can either A, quote the law verbatim, 
which would take a long time, or B, summarize it. And there was a summarization of the law that existed. And he gives them the summary. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Love God with 100% of what you got 100% of the time. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, oh, well said, go do that. And he said, well, hold on, who's my neighbor? Who, who is this neighbor I'm supposed to love that I have to meet their needs with as much forcefulness as I meet my own needs? You know, who, who is this, this person? And Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan to try to help him understand what love and action really means. He gives him a story to say, here is love expressing itself, and it's going to express itself in deeds of service to someone that has physical and material needs. It's going to be love expressing itself, properly motivated, social concern. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 10. Let me turn there with you. I, you beat me to it already. Luke 10, verse 30. Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. They stripped him of his, of his raiment. They wounded him. They departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So here's three guys that go by this man who's on the floor, half dead, in desperate need of, of physical attention, of material attention. Two guys see him, and they avoid him completely. One guy sees compassion, heart, love is there, and here's what he does. He went to him, and not like James, prayed for him and said, bless you, and left. No, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. He set him on his own beast. He brought him to an end, took care of him. On the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and he gave them to the host. And he said, take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer answers as only he could, he well, he, the guy that showed mercy on him, and Jesus said unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now, what's happening here? Here's a man, the whole point is, who's my neighbor? Who do I love? Here's a man who's motivated by love for his neighbor, and he comes along, not in self-interest, okay? He's not, oh, I know that guy, he's rich. If I take care of him, he'll probably give me some money one day. No, not, not wanting the praise of man, not working an angle. True compassion, verse 33, good, good motivation, love for this man. And how does the love express itself? In deeds of service that meet this man's physical and material needs. He gives him medical assistance. He takes care of his wounds. He bandages them up. He pours wine and oil in. He gives him transportation. He says, come, get on my donkey. I'll, I'll provide transportation. He gives him a roof over his head. He gives him protection. He gives him companionship. He stays the night with him and is a friend to him. He gives him a financial subsidy. He actually says, hey, here's two pence. Take care of his bills. If he needs more than this, then I'll, then I'll take care of that. When I come, I'll cover the tab. He gives him food. He gives him water. Extremely practical things that a man in dire straits needs. Very, very practical, down-to-earth needs that his love reaches out and meets. Now, here's, here's where it's going to come home to you. I meet Christians all the time who think that stuff is wonderful. I meet many that pr would prefer the government not to do it for them. I meet some that do want the government to, to take charge in some of these things. But regardless, 
I all the time meet Christians that say the idea that a Christian or someone out of generosity and love and compassion would reach out to someone else who has a need and would practically, tangibly meet that need, two thumbs up, great idea. I very rarely meet someone who's, who's mad because we as a church get up. If you think about the last three or four months, we have celebrated together that uh, last week we opened up the Rearcle Medical Center in Honduras and provided surgeries for people who could not afford them free of charge in Honduras. I didn't have one person who was mad about that. But a bunch of you were like, that's awesome. That's fantastic. We, we've celebrated here in December that uh, one of our groups got uh, sleeping bags and shoes and meals and clothes for some of the homeless of our community and actually partnered with Light of Life Rescue Mission and brought that to them. Nobody was mad about that. Everybody was happy about it. We had Shop with a Hero back in, in Christmas time, and we partnered up young people in our community that we know, that we know, that we know have, have extreme needs and put them with first responders, took them shopping at Walmart, bought them a winter coat, you know, those sorts of things. Everybody was great with that. Everybody celebrates it. So I, I meet people all the time who love the idea and think it's great. I rarely, and I mean rarely, meet a Christian who doesn't think it's optional. Christians who think it's great, yeah. Christians who think it's required of them, not much. I don't, I don't meet those people very often. Sure, Pastor. Worship? Yeah. Worship? Essential. Absolutely essential, biblically. Evangelism? Yeah, Pastor. I think that's essential, biblically. Witness to people? Oh, yeah. That we should be a Christian community, that we should fellowship with each other? Yeah, that's essential. Uh, study the Bible, intake the Word, understand the Word? Yeah, essential. Concern for the poor, caring for people, meeting their needs? Eh, I don't know, optional. And I'm here to advocate the position of the scriptures, which is it's not optional. It's actually legitimately what God wants of your life. Not just corporately, okay? Let's, let's give a hooray, hooray for, you know, what we do corporately. That's wonderful. I think in the last six, seven years, our church has grown massively in this, and we've begun to understand this. But beyond corporately, you, individually, what do you do? Not, oh, that group did that good for them. Oh, they did that good for them. No, what do you do? Is this something that is at all optional to you? And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you this morning. I am trying to teach and I'm trying to help. This is something a properly motivated social concern is legitimately a biblical idea and beyond an idea, a command. Let me stop now because now's the point in the sermon where I've said enough to where you're wanting to wiggle free from this obligation and you, you've already raised in your mind like the, the, you know, the internal lawyer came up with the four objections as to why, now I don't know, about, what about this? That sounds progressive. That, you know, I've, okay, let me just stop and, and tackle a couple of the objections to this, the objections to good works. This is no, by no means a, an all-encompassing, you know, here's all the objections that I've ever heard in my whole life, but these are the most common objections that I've heard. Objection one, aren't we supposed to be sharing the gospel? Best, I hear what you're saying, but aren't we supposed to be like sharing the gospel? Remember, remember Peter and John, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have unto thee, you know, I give unto thee, rise up and walk. I mean, they, they were just sharing the gospel with people. So aren't we supposed to be sharing the gospel? Yes, okay? Yes, let's be clear. We preached a whole sermon on it a few weeks ago, okay? But is that mutually exclusive of doing good works? It's not. Now, I'm sympathetic to those, including myself, who were kind of in this boat for a long time, that think or thought, man, 
Gospel, yes. Good works, I don't know, optional. Because this is deeply rooted in American Christian churches. To give you a brief history lesson, about 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago, early 20th century, there really became this divide amongst mainline churches that went along the lines of social concern. There were churches that were very liberal in their theology, became flat-out heretical, did not have proper doctrine, began to deny Jesus, began to deny his deity, began to deny that he died for sins, began to deny that. But they had a lot of social concern. And out of that was birthed what became known as the social gospel. That it's, it's my job to just meet people, their needs, the poor, the sick, care for them. That really is what witnessing is all about. Then you had over here the more or less fundamentalist churches that held to good doctrine, that held to dividing the scriptures the right way, holding on to what the scriptures really teach, but really stiff-armed the idea of the social gospel movement, and partly rightly so, but held on to just individual faith and evangelism of the lost. And while I am appreciative of evangelism of the lost, I am appreciative of good doctrine, I am appreciative of recognizing error, for sure. Those two, as far as doing good works and evangelizing the lost, were not meant to be mutually exclusive. I am sympathetic and I can understand how that came about in many American churches. I can understand how that has even been passed down now through a couple generations. But the bottom line scripturally is that there's a false dichotomy when you begin to say you have to choose helping people in need or evangelizing one or the other. That's not the case. The two are supposed to go together. They're supposed to both be present in the heart of the church. They're supposed to both be present in the heart of a Christian. One of the best examples of this I could give is actually from the book, The Cross and the Switchblade. Very famous Christian book uh, written a number of years ago. Just out of curiosity, raise of hands. How many have read The Cross and the Switchblade? Okay. I knew there'd be a sprinkling of hands around the room. It's uh, written about a minister, David Wilkerson, an Assemblies of God minister back in the 50s and the 60s. He pastored a small country church in Pennsylvania, actually, and through a series of events, he found himself witnessing and street evangelizing to the teenage gangs of New York City. And he was still pastoring, but he just, it's a long story that I won't get into, but he, he finds himself there holding evangelistic crusades, just on corners of streets, preaching, and he's seen these 13, 14, 15-year-old boys who have murdered people and are addicted to drugs, and he's seen these young people, boys and girls, come to faith, responding to the Spirit of God and, and stepping into faith, leaving their gangs. And, and one of the boys that taught him the most was a boy by the name of Israel. Israel was the president, the leader of the Mau Mau's, which was one of the gangs of, of New York City in the Bronx. And Israel just had a special place in David Wilkerson's heart. There was just something that connected them together. And he, uh, one day when he was preaching, came forward, responded in faith, received Jesus, and walked away from his gang. At this point in time, David Wilkerson was more or less doing drive-by evangelism. He would come in, he would evangelize, preach the gospel, recommend a couple churches in the area, then he'd leave and he'd go back to his, to his church in Pennsylvania. About six months went by, he was back home, and he went back to New York about six months later, and he went to check up on Israel, and he found that Israel had come back to his gang, and that Israel not only had come back to his gang, but that Israel was now in jail, he was arrested, and he was being brought up on charges for murder. And David was beside himself, and he said, what in the world happened? 
Was this not legitimate? Did he, did he not really come to faith? What in the world happened? And he began to investigate what happened and begin to understand the plight of Israel and boys like him. That when Israel left his gang, Israel didn't have a mom, Israel didn't have a dad, he didn't have a home. The gang was his home, the, the street were his home. And when he left, he had to eat. And previously, he stuck people up and he got their money or he got something of value off their wrist and he pawned it. That's how he ate. Now, he wasn't doing that anymore, so he was really struggling to come buy food. Previously, Israel had this, this place where he could stay, this old condemned house where these boys basically took charge of. It was their clubhouse, their gang house, where they lived. He had a roof over his head. But now that he had left the gang and he had turned to religion, turned to Jesus, he, he no longer had a place over his head. He had nowhere to sleep. Previously, Israel was not in school, but now he couldn't go to school anymore either because to get to school, he had to walk through the turf of the other gangs. And even though he wasn't a part of the Mau Mau's any longer, he still was at least going to get beat up, if not stabbed, if not murdered, if he went on their turf. He had to stay to his turf. He knew the rules. Previously, Israel had, had protection, and his, his soldiers and his gang would protect him, but now his soldiers were against him, and they mocked him, and you have religion. They didn't just mock him. They would test him. They would beat him. He was stabbed repeatedly. And when it was all said and done, Israel just decided it was too much. He went back to the gang where he knew he could have some food, he could have some shelter, he could have a little bit of companionship, he could have some protection. He went back to it and ended up getting involved in a scenario where a murder was committed, and, and he was ultimately convicted and spent years and years and years in prison. It was in this moment of trying to help this boy that Wilkerson realized, my sharing the gospel with these young men is pure, it's right, it's beautiful, it's the thing to do. But I'm falling short over here and I have to take a bit more of a holistic approach here. I need to be rich in good works. He ends up leaving his church and he started a, a home they are in the middle of, of the roughest part of New York City. It was a home for boys and girls where they could actually come to faith, where they could come, they could have a meal, they could have some education, they could put them on their feet. And what Wilkerson did beautifully is he never, never, never lost his heart to evangelize, lost the heart to go out on the streets and to share the gospel of Jesus, but he coupled with it good works, and it worked beautifully and changed the lives of so many boys and girls in New York City. That's what it's, it's not supposed to be an either-or thing, that's what I'm saying. Bottom line. It's not supposed to be, aren't we just supposed to evangelize? No, we should evangelize, but we're supposed to do more than that. We're supposed to be people that are rich in good works. Second objection I hear a lot is I don't have a lot. Oh, that's cool. For the, you know, for those people that have a lot, for those people can do big things. But, but, you know, I don't have a lot. And to be honest, we live in a culture that is constantly telling us to look at other people who have more than us. And it creates in us Many times, a sort of victim mentality. Well, I don't have a house like they have. I mean, yeah, I got a house, but I don't have a house like they have. Or I don't have a house, but I don't have an apartment like they have. You know, I, I'm not able to drive the car like, like they have. I'm not able to eat the food like they are able to eat the food. We constantly see this in tabloids and magazines and Instagram and all over the place. You know, I, I mean, I was able to go to Disney World with my kids for a week, but I mean, they got to go to Disney World and Kennywood. We do this to ourselves all the time where we're looking two rungs up the ladder. They have more, they have more, they have more, so I want that, I want that, I want that. And my recommendation to you, sincerely as your pastor, is don't look two rungs up the ladder. Look all the way up the ladder, okay? Just keep going. Go all the way up. Go to the one who has everything, owns everything, created everything. Look at him and where he chose to choose to go. He went to the bottom, he had it all, but he became a man, and not just a man, not just a king, but a servant, 
And not just a servant, but he humbled himself and he became obedient unto death. And not just death, even death on the cross. The one who's at the very top went to the very bottom. And he's not even asking you in the middle somewhere to go to the very bottom. He's not saying go die on a cross for the sins of the world and be separated from your father. He's not saying do that. But he is saying maybe pick two rungs down and go down there. Instead of looking two rungs up and saying, well, I don't have that, I don't have that, I don't have that, look two rungs down and say, you know what, I do have more than them or them or that or that or that, and I can help there. I can't help everywhere, but I can help there. I can do something. When I ministered in, in California, I ministered in Chico was the name of the city. Chico's about 100,000 people. 20,000 people are, uh, are college students. So there's about 80,000 people that belong to, you know, the nuclear family unit. As such, there's four elementary schools in Chico. And there was a man in, in the church there, Dave Colburn. Dave's still alive. He's uh, in his 80s now. Uh, his wife is Sally. And Dave was a normal Chico guy. Had a house, not a super nice house. Was retired, but on a fixed income. Didn't have a lot of money. Had, had enough to live, but he didn't have a ton. And he decided that he was going to be the shoe angel. So he contacted every elementary school in our city and he said, if you have a kid who comes in, you know the kids, you know the backgrounds, you know the family. I don't. All I want you to do is call me. If they come in and they have shoes that are worn out, you know they don't have enough money. The shoes are two sizes too small or they're two sizes too big because they've been passed down from the older brother. And, and they don't have a good pair of shoes. Call me. I will go get them a pair of shoes. Dave started to get, you know, one phone call, two, they began to know him. Five a month, 10 a month, 20 a month. It got to the point where Dave didn't have the money to buy all the shoes. He wouldn't go buy super, super nice shoes, but he wouldn't go to, to Goodwill and get used ones either. He would, he would try to buy them a, you know, a pair of 10 bucks or something. So Dave decided that he was going to raise the money. So he contacted the, the Boy Scouts and the athletic clubs that were in the area and said, hey, you do your fundraisers, you sell your candy bars, you sell your cookies, whatever. Whatever you have left over, contact me. I'll buy it from you for cost. You're not going to make any money, but you're not going to lose any money. I'll buy your leftovers that you don't sell for cost, and I'll take it, and I'll sell it for the same price, and I'll make, the, I'll make the profit, and I'll put it in my little shoe bank, and I'll go buy shoes for kids. I can't tell you how many times I walked out of Save Mart in Chico, California, and saw Dave Colburn sitting at a table selling candy bars for 50 cents a piece profit so he could have money to go buy shoes for kids that weren't going to get shoes otherwise. That's what I'm talking about. Like, that's... Dave couldn't do everything. He couldn't meet every need. He could, but he realized, I'm here. I, I may, I'm, and there's a lot of people above me, but I can look down a couple rungs. I can find somebody that I can help. And I, I can choose to do that. I'll give you one more. I don't have time for any more than this. But I oftentimes hear, well, pastor, you know, okay, that sounds all good. But you know there's a lot of shysters out there. You know, I'm not going to get taken advantage of. I don't want to be used. I don't want to be made a fool of. You know, I mean, I've seen Dateline. There was that dude on there. He was a millionaire. You know, he, he panhandled. He had his rotation, but he didn't really need money, and he had millions. Okay, I get it. I, I will admit, I will admit, there are shysters. There are. But there are lawyers that are shysters. There are doctors that are kooks. There are Christians that are hypocrites. I don't avoid all lawyers or all doctors or all Christians for that reason. So I'm not avoiding everybody that has a need because someone else pretended they had a need. I'm not telling you to be unwise. Be wise. Be shrewd even. If someone is hold up a sign saying that they need some help, probably a good idea to buy them a burger rather than just throwing them money. It's probably a good idea. If someone's holding up a sign that says, why lie? I want beer. Appreciate the honesty, but don't give them anything, okay? 
be wise. Ever seen those signs? But you can do something, and yes, you may get taken advantage of. I want to, up front, you may. Jesus invested deeply in 12 men. One of them took advantage of him for 30 pieces of silver. It happened. Did he write everybody off and, and choose that, you know, this is the end of it, I'm done with this? No, and I'm glad he didn't. So it may happen. You'll learn a lesson, be more wise the next time, but don't, don't depart from this. Don't pull back from this just because someone's out there who's, who's going to be a shyster. My biggest recommendation, honestly, is, is just to do something proactive. It's, if you're not careful, what you'll come away with in the sermon is a guilt complex and just saying, okay, I just have to wander through life and anyone who has a need, they come up to me and then I guess I just got to pull the money out, write them a check, I got to meet it, you know, because I'm going to feel guilty if I don't. That's that, I would not recommend that. It's far better for you to be proactive in what you do than just reactive and just reacting to needs left and right, left and right. It's far better for you to say, okay, here's where I'm at. Here's what I got at my disposal. How can I leverage that in a meaningful, proactive, targeted way? What can I do? I can't do everything, but what can I do? This is something that my wife and I have had to learn and have had to grow in over four or five, the last four or five years here. We started by taking 1% of our income and setting it aside for what we call almsgiving or good works, just meeting practical needs. 1% of our income is not a whole lot of money every paycheck. <laughs> to be honest, it doesn't amount to a lot, but it would pile up a little bit. We'd hear of a need. We'd, we'd try to go meet the need. It'd pile up a little bit more. We'd meet the need. Eventually, we, we decided that we should do something a little bit more targeted or proactive. One of our church members uh, brought a need to our attention that they were involved with a school in Haiti that was trying to educate children and, and honestly meet practical needs that they could not meet. And they told us that you can sponsor a student and you actually know who they are, have communication with them. You can sponsor a student and it's, it's just a few dollars a month. It ends up being about 250 bucks a year. It's not a lot of money. But you can sponsor somebody and you, it'll take care of their food for the day, like some rice and beans. It'll take care of their school supplies and it'll give them their school uniform for the year. This is a, uh, a picture of Giovannia. Giovannia, here she comes. Uh, Giovanni is in fourth grade. Uh, we've been sponsoring her since she was in first grade. And uh, that's the letter she wrote us at Christmas. It's, a, it's, a, oh, it's, it's such a sweet letter. Uh, you probably can't read it at all, as small as it is on the screen. But there, you know how many Giovannias of the world there are? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Do I have the means to go help every single one of them? Not even close. But I had the means to do one. And I could be proactive and choose to do that. Most recently, my wife and I have decided to get into foster care. And uh, we just got our certificate in the mail here about a week or so ago. And anytime I tell someone, hey, you know, we're, we're considering foster care, we're going through the process, without a doubt, I get the same befuddled look of amazement. Because <laughs> and I can read their mind every time. Don't you already have four kids that are like six and under and isn't your plate kind of like, you know, full at the moment? Uh, why would you do this to yourself? And I get, I get where people come from. I, I get the questions that we've got from it. But the, the, honestly, the answer for us is this sermon. For us, it is a proactive way to actually work this out in our lives. We know we already have kids, okay? We already have a room. We already got a bunk bed. Already bought the car seats. They're just being passed down. Already got a car seat. Already got toys in the room. I got like, 
That's all already established. This is a very proactive, targeted way for us to be able to help someone else. And that kid actually comes from the, you know, from foster care with a per diem per day, which will actually put more money in our pockets to go be able to help other people. For us, it was a, it was a very, I'm not saying everyone should do foster care by, by a mile. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying for us, it was a very practical way for us to say, here's something that we can choose to look two rungs down the ladder and we can choose to work this out because it's our job. It's our duty. We should be, we should be about this. You've gotten the point and I've already gone too long. Forgive me. I have one more thing to say to you. I'll spend two minutes. I'll be quick. I want to leave you with the catalyst for good works. And I want to talk about the catalyst, meaning the, the motor or what drives good works, because if I'm not careful, I know I'll leave you with nothing but guilt. And I don't want to do that. Guilt is a terrible motivator in the long term. Short term, wildly effective. Wildly effective. I could probably guilt you into a lot of stuff right now. But in the long term, it's terrible. You'll burn out. If guilt is your motivation, it won't work. So I want you to know the proper motivation. How is it that here in the Good Samaritan story that the priest and the Levite, they pass by. They don't feel anything. But this guy passes by and he feels compassion. He feels love. There's something that goes on inside of him that, that pushes him and propels him. It's love. It's proper motivation. How do you get that love? How do you get that proper motivation? And it's a, it honestly is the same answer as your whole Christian life. It's through the cross, it's through Jesus, it's through the good news, it's through the gospel. You have, to, you have to marinate yourself in the good news of Jesus over and over and over again. Because what does the good news teach us? It teaches us that we, those that are now Christians, we were the people who were poor, spiritually poor, spiritually bankrupt, but the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians that he who was rich, Jesus, became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. What the Bible teaches is that spiritually speaking, you and I were the one on the floor. We were the half dead. And Jesus got off his horse and picked us up and bandaged us up and cared for us and provided for us in ways that we never stood a chance of providing for ourselves. And he didn't do it grudgingly. He didn't do it out of anger. He didn't do it out of guilt. But he did it out of a pure heart and a pure motivation. And if you can understand that that was you, maybe not physically, maybe not materially, but at least spiritually, as a Christian, you were the poor one. You were, you were destitute spiritually. You weren't middle class spiritually. You were poor and he came and got off his horse for you. And he made you rich. Then shouldn't we want to give that away to other people? Shouldn't we say that felt really good? So Jesus, I'll do my best to provide for other people. Yes, I'll share the gospel with them. But yes, I'll give to them. I'll meet needs. I'll be rich in good works. I'm, I'm, I would claim that that's the only proper motivation. To have your heart be absorbed and, and, and so enamored with the good news of Jesus that it, that it provokes you and it produces in you a heart to want to help other people. Corporately, I'm praying that we'll continue to grow in this as we have the last few years. But individually, my heart, my prayer for this sermon is that you personally, specifically, would choose to do something as well. That you wouldn't just let it go by the wayside, that you wouldn't say it's a good idea, that you wouldn't just feel guilty, but that you do something from the right heart. Father, we love you, and I pray this morning that there would be a whole lot of Christians that choose to look two rungs below, 
Lord, I pray that there would be a whole lot of Christians today